It's a warm Sunday night on Elm Drive in Beverly Hills. You can hear the low hum of cars passing by a block away on Sunset Boulevard. The neighborhood is sterile, the lawns all perfectly manicured with fresh-cut grass and sculpted bushes. Some homes have wrought iron gates to keep out unwanted visitors. Most nights, it feels stately, calm. There's a mansion on that street. The address is 722 Elm Drive. That mansion was once home to the rich and the famous. But tonight, it will become home to the infamous. It's around 10 p.m. Inside the house, the James Bond thriller, The Spy Who Loved Me, is playing on the TV. James, that motorcycle has been following us for the last mile. Jose Menendez and his wife Kitty sit on the couch next to each other, watching the movie. They're eating dessert, a bowl of berries and cream, when... I had heard some sounds going off, and I thought that uh, there were Chinese firecrackers. It was a series of, like, popping. Avril Krom lives two doors down from the Menendez family. At first, she doesn't think the sounds she hears are gunshots. After all, this is Beverly Hills. So she ignores it. That is, until the cops arrive. It was only when my son said, oh, mom, that's what I was telling you. Those were shotguns. Um, So I only then did I click what I was hearing as to what was going on. What's the problem? What's the problem? What's the problem? I'm trying to kill my parents. Pardon me? <laughs> what? Who? Are they still there? Yeah. The people? Oh, no, no. <laughs> were they shot? Hey, Matthew. Uh, were they shot? That night, Lyle Menendez called 911. He told the operator someone had killed his parents. He didn't say who, at least not yet. We just burst through the doors and uh, I started firing. I was just firing as I went into the room. I just started firing. In what direction? In front of me. What was in front of you? My parents. There's no question who killed Jose and Kitty Menendez. Their own children admitted to the murders, but that doesn't mean it made sense. Eric was just 19 and Lyle 22. The two sons shot their parents in their living room. That was clear. What wasn't clear was why. America would spend decades chewing over that question. And still today, so much is unanswered. I'm your host, Vinnie Politan, and this is Murder and the Menendez Brothers, a court TV mystery. I'm a former prosecutor and journalist and now lead anchor for Court TV. Today, episode one, Concentric Circles. You might think you know the story. Two greedy brothers out for their parents' fortune. But once the Menendez trial was broadcast, a soap opera unfolded that flipped that story on its head. The trial was unpredictable and dramatic. A national audience became fascinated with the Menendez brothers. 
Not many Hollywood murder mysteries ever took a more dramatic turn than police are describing in a couple of savage Beverly Hills killings. We were the only network to offer a front row seat to the Menendez proceedings. The nightmare on Elm Drive quickly became water cooler conversation. There were plenty of reasons why. This is the kind of rich family we assumed led squeaky clean lives in tennis whites, but we were wrong. What's happening behind the closed door of the rich and famous? That was new. That's Lori Levinson, a law professor at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles. We'll be hearing from her throughout our series. Americans were entranced by the dysfunction that led to the Menendez family's collapse. Rarely do families come apart as publicly or as savagely. And in the 1990s, we didn't really talk about trauma or abuse. At the time, that wasn't something that was particularly openly discussed in cases, especially when it came to family violence. But with this trial, taboo topics spilled out into the open. People gossiped about whether to believe the Menendez brothers. Their family matters weren't just on TV, they became part of pop culture. Well, that's what happens, you know, you clean the gun, it goes off 14 times and your parents accidentally kill your parents. Yeah, yeah. Who hasn't shot their mom in the face by mistake, you know? Yeah. I mean, it happens. Back then, comedians like Jay Leno made Eric and Lyle the butt of their jokes. SNL had a skit. Lyle wore a royal blue sweater and Eric wore a salmon one. Let me ask you once again. Is it your testimony that you and your brother Eric, in fact, had nothing to do with the murder of your parents, Jose and Kitty Menendez? That's correct. Then can you tell the court who did murder your parents? Our other two brothers, Danny Menendez and Jose Menendez, Jr. They both sobbed and we laughed. Back then, it was all just a little too much. It's almost like it was easier to believe these two brothers were rich sociopaths than to wrestle with their pain. When the Menendez brothers went to trial, Americans were divided. Were Eric and Lyle cold-blooded killers? Or could their family secrets justify their crime? In the next six episodes, we'll hear more about why this trial struck a chord, how it broke new ground and ended in a way that no one saw coming. But I'm getting ahead of myself. No one was sure what had happened. And on August 21st, 1989, I got a phone call in the newsroom at the Miami Herald. That's Robert Rand. He's written a book about the Menendez murders and has followed the story for 30 years. Back in 1989, when he got that phone call, Rand was a reporter at the Miami Herald. My assignment for the Miami Herald was to write a biography about Jose Menendez, not, not to write a story about the murder investigation. Rand started digging around for leads. I found out uh, Jose Menendez had a sister, uh, Marta Cano, who lived in West Palm Beach, Florida. Rand got Marta Cano's number from the phone book and called her up. And she immediately invited me up to her house in West Palm Beach. Still in shock, Marta told him her late brother's rags-to-riches story. Jose came to America at 16 with nothing in his pockets, but he had charm. He had brains, he had grit. And by the time Jose was in his early 40s, he was a business executive at RCA Records. He was married to his college sweetheart, Kitty, 
and they had two promising young boys, Joseph Lyle Menendez and Eric Galen Menendez. But he still wanted more for the Menendez family name. From what I remember, he regarded the Kennedys as the example of a family he wanted to emulate. That's John Johnson. He was a reporter for the L.A. Times who went on to co-author the book Blood Brothers with journalist Ron Sobel. As the firstborn son, he considered Lyle the one who would, you know, take over and lead the family a little bit like, you know, old man Kennedy considered, you know, John to be somebody who's going to lead the family up into, you know, even higher echelons. He remembers meeting a neighbor of the Menendezes who saw Jose with his sons. How he would have uh, Lyle and Eric out there on freezing mornings practicing their tennis and, and you know, and yelling at them to, to do better. Robert Rand also says that Jose pushed his sons to be champion athletes. So he hired coaches for them, uh, made them get up at four in the morning to hit balls for three hours before going to school. In 1988, Lyle enrolled at Princeton University. It was a milestone not just for the freshman, but for his immigrant father, too. Around that time, Jose became the CEO of a film and video distribution studio in L.A. So the family moved to Beverly Hills. They weren't just on the fringes of Beverly Hills. They were on uh, one of the nicest streets and with big mansions and such. On the outside, uh, people considered the Menendez to be, to be the perfect uh, all-American family. Everybody admired them. They lived in a mansion in Beverly Hills. But behind the gates of that mansion, it was a different story. Every family has its secrets. What made this case stand out was how those secrets came to light as a result of a brutal double murder. A murder in Beverly Hills is a very big story, not only in Los Angeles, but around the world. And even today, you don't have many murders in Beverly Hills. People couldn't wrap their heads around it. It was inconceivable that two sons would kill their parents. It's called parasite. Doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but it sticks in the mind. Parasite breaks a fundamental code. Family is supposed to be forever. Blood is thicker than water. Parents and children are supposed to have lasting ties. Maybe this was in the minds of the first responders on the night of August 20th, 1989. Maybe that's why they didn't immediately suspect the sons. Michael Butkus was one of the first officers on the scene. He parked a few houses down the street and cautiously walked down Elm Drive towards the house. It was nighttime, obviously. It was very dark. Uh, the streetlights were the only illumination, and the house was not illuminated in any way. At first, there was silence. We approached the house. I believe there's a, a front entrance with a swinging gate set. We stopped for a moment. Then suddenly, I heard some screaming from the front of 722 North Elm. It was Eric and Lyle, but at the time, Officer Butkus just saw two grown men fleeing the scene. They came running out towards the front of the house where I was positioned, uh, still yelling and screaming, and they made their way to the curb where I was. Butkus drew his gun and told them to get on the ground. They both went down onto all fours, and then later into a sitting position. He started asking questions. Then he realized they had called it in. At the time, they were very distraught. They just kept saying the same old phrases over and over. Uh, oh my God, oh my God. And this continued for a while. Eric and Lyle were inconsolable. 
Butka said the brothers kept banging their fists on the ground. Neither would tell the police what happened. Officer Butkus couldn't remember whether it was Eric or Lyle, but one of them took his hand and pointed towards the house and uh, continually kept saying, just go inside and see, just go see. That was the only type of response I got from them. Within minutes, more police arrived at the house. Then the sergeant on the scene approached me with a number of other officers, and uh, there was a necessity to go into the house to find a suspect or possibly uh, someone who had been shot or uh, injured. A sergeant and two backup police officers walked up to the front door. When I was at the front doors of the house, prior to even going in, I could hear the television on at that time. The cops didn't know what to expect. For all they knew, the killer could still be inside. I took my flashlight and actually skipped it across the foyer um, floor towards the back of it, uh, feeling that if there was a suspect in there, it would act as a distraction. The officers searched the living room. Nothing. Then the den. Nothing there either. And uh, directly at the back of the hallway or the foyer, there was a, um, a family room of some type that the lights were on in there. The lead sergeant entered the family room. That's where the sounds from the TV had been coming. He approached the L-shaped couch. There was a male seated on the sofa, and there was uh, a female lying on the floor just in front of the sofa. I looked for any signs of respiration, which I did not see. There was blood all over. Jose had a large wound in his left leg. There was a large amount of blood around him and on his clothing. This part gets pretty graphic. And I also noticed that there was a a large portion of the back of his head was missing. The sergeant moved on to examine Kitty's body. On the female, again, it was the large amount of blood that I noticed. She also had some very large wounds on her. He checked to see if she might still be breathing. Kitty was riddled with gunshot wounds, including her face. She was barely identifiable, and she was cold. I was able to look at her one eye. It appeared to be fixed, and uh, she appeared to have uh, one or two, maybe, uh, wounds to the head also. The scene of the crime was a complete mess. Neither of the victims looked like their former selves. The murder of Jose and Kitty Menendez was savage and chaotic. After clearing the house, police searched for shrapnel, shell casings, anything that could identify the weapons the killers used. I could see what I recognized to be a, a shot pattern in that door, which indicated to me a shotgun. Soon after, Detective Leslie Zoller arrived. He'd been a cop for more than a decade. Now he was working robbery and homicide. Zoller would lead the investigation for the Beverly Hills Police Department. His team set to work gathering evidence while the coroner examined the bodies. Outside, the brothers were still hysterical. Eric and Lyle Menendez were so emotional on the night of the murders that uh, they were both taken to the Beverly Hills uh, Police Department. A sergeant named Thomas Edmonds was the one who had to get answers out of the brothers. He was the supervisor for homicide detectives, so it fell to him. First things first, he thought it would help to get the brothers away from the crime scene and all that blood. He met them at the station. 
Sergeant Edmonds sat the brothers down for an interview. He taped it. This tape is hard to hear, but Edmonds is asking Lyle to recount what happened. Lyle tells Edmonds that he was at the movies. He was watching Batman with Eric when their mother and father had been murdered. They got back to the house and found their parents dead. Lyle maintains his calm and begins to tell Edmonds about his father's business and its connection to organized crime. In the tape, Eric is crying and unable to speak clearly. Edmonds questions Eric, but he's hard to discern. Eric is so overwrought that Edmonds stops the tape after 20 minutes. Well, I didn't try to make him stop crying, but I consoled him. That's Sergeant Edmonds. That night, he didn't see the brothers as primary suspects. Well, they had accounted for their whereabouts, and uh, it was too early on to make any conclusions that uh, who might be a suspect. Traditionally, the police work in concentric circles in which they start with the family members and the people closest to the victims. Uh, but both brothers seemed extremely distraught. The emotion seemed genuine, so police held back their suspicions, at least for now. Back at the house, investigators found no guns, no shells, no fingerprints, just wadding. I know what you're thinking. What is wadding? Wadding is a component within a shotgun shell. That's Detective Zoller again. At the very least, wadding could help them track down the kind of shotgun the killers used. That same morning, when Detective Zoller was at the mansion, some visitors stopped by. First time that I had seen them was at uh, approximately 5.30 in the morning on the 21st. It was Lyle and Eric. They wanted to go inside the house to get some of their belongings. The request was to pick up some items. Those items in particular were tennis equipment. Detective Zoller found this odd. They said their equipment was in the family room just a few feet from their parents' bodies. Because it was in the family room, I didn't want to relinquish anything that was in there because the investigation had not been complete yet. Why was tennis, of all things, on their minds just hours after they'd come home to find their dead parents? Zoller told them the crime scene hadn't been cleared yet. Three hours later, the brothers were back. By then, the coroner had taken Jose and Kitty away. Shortly after 8.30 or at 8.30, we, the investigators, relinquished the house to them. So they had the run of the house. They could do what they wanted. And so, incredibly, the police just let them go in. That's right. Nobody escorted the brothers. At this point, they weren't considered suspects. In the coming weeks, the police took the brothers' word and started investigating organized crime. The L.A. Times, the Wall Street Journal, a number of other media outlets were publishing stories that uh, this was some sort of mafia hit or in some way related to the home video business, which in its history had a background of being connected to uh, uh, mafia people. Specifically, Eric pointed to a man named Noel C. Bloom. Jose had acquired Bloom's company, so they'd engaged in business dealings recently. The IVE, Noel Bloom's company, had a division which was involved in producing pornography uh, or adult films, let us say. 
That's Roger Smith, a senior executive at Live Entertainment, where Jose was the CEO. Anybody in that business, rightly, wrongly, fairly or unfairly, is assumed to have some kind of, quote, criminal connections. Within weeks of the murder, detectives weren't finding any evidence connecting organized crime to live entertainment or Jose Menendez. What they had found? An almost uniform dislike of Jose. Reporters had found his colleagues feared and despised him. Roger Smith described his relationship with Jose as... Testy would be one word. Um, There was clearly no affection between the, or real friendship between the two of us. Smith didn't like the way he treated people. Almost entirely based on his behavior toward others rather than toward myself, particularly other employees of the company. Totally controlling, belittling, and, and instilling fear. Characteristically, he... He treated them in a way that I would call um, sort of entrapment. He would get them to say things uh, which he would delight if he could lead them down a path where they were clearly wrong and then expose them in front of others as having been wrong. John Johnson, the L.A. Times reporter, spoke to Jose's ex-colleagues from Hertz. Jose had been an executive at the car rental company. They told stories about how You know, that whenever he would hold some quarterly business meeting to see how everybody was doing, everybody would be scared to death about what would happen. And he would call people out by names, and and, uh, a lot of people didn't like him. He could be a real tough bastard. But Jose was more than a hard-nosed businessman. He was a bully. I remember a very specific incident where after having humiliated a middle-level employee, he saw the look on my face, and he turned to me with a sort of smile and said, I've always thought, Roger, it was far better to be feared than to be loved. It's better to be feared than to be loved. A philosophy with a tragic flaw. If Jose was disliked by some of the people he worked with, that meant he had enemies. But investigators kept hitting walls. They knew where the killers entered the Menendez house, but they had no prints. They had a rather nasty image of Jose as a business executive, but no proof of mob connections. They had wadding, but no trace of the weapons that left the wadding behind. But maybe the lack of evidence was the evidence. Weeks into the investigation, Detective Zoller couldn't rule out anyone close to Jose and Kitty, including family. Now that they knew Jose was domineering, it wasn't hard for him to imagine Eric and Lyle nursing a grudge against their father. So police kept a close eye on the brothers. They went out and started spending money all over the place, buying a a new Porsche and all kinds of things. Jose's secretary, Marlene Eisenberg, remembered seeing Eric wear a new Rolex at the Menendez's funeral. It was a very nice-looking watch. I remember the face of it, which, um, God, it was lovely. He was barely an adult, but he had hired a tennis coach to the tune of 50 grand a year. He invested $40,000 in a rock concert, but it was a con. He lost it all. Still at Princeton, Lyle bought a brand new Porsche, three new Rolexes, and spent thousands on clothing. And there was more. Lyle wanted to become a restaurant magnate. He bought a cafeteria-style restaurant for more than half a million dollars. He thought the Mr. Buffalo's chain could become a national franchise, something his father told him would never take off. 
The lavish purchases got investigators thinking. Could all that spending amount to a motive? Looking back, Sergeant Edmonds couldn't square something the brothers told him the night of the murders. He said he saw smoke and smell smoke. Well, I felt that if you saw smoke, it would have had to have been pretty shortly after the guns were fired because uh, smoke would dissipate fairly rapidly. The police got a hold of Craig Signorelli, Eric's best friend. Signorelli told them he and Eric had written a screenplay called Friends. It was about a rich kid named Hamilton Cromwell who kills his parents for their money. Sound familiar? Signorelli then told police that Eric had teased him with a detailed story of how he and his brother had planned it. Signorelli was sure Eric had to be joking, but Detective Zoller saw an opportunity. He was more certain than ever that the brothers had killed their parents, but still had no proof. He convinced Signorelli to wear a wire and ask Eric to tell him the story again. But Eric wouldn't. He claimed he had been joking, and even if he had confessed, the tape recording was unintelligible. Another dead end for the police. The cops were no closer to catching the killers than when their investigation started seven months ago. But they were about to get a break. It was March of 1990. A stranger was about to come forward with information. What she knew would be the key to getting Eric and Lyle to confess. They would tell the whole world exactly what happened the night their parents died. It was around 10 p.m. Inside the house, a Bond thriller, The Spy Who Loved Me, played on TV. Jose Menendez and his wife Kitty sit on the couch next to each other, watching the movie. They're eating dessert, a bowl of berries and cream when... Eric had his gun hidden under his bed in the house. Lyle was living in the guest house. He ran out, got his gun, and uh, they came around and met at the front of the house, uh, came in through the front door. Jose and Kitty Menendez were in the room watching TV, and so they burst through the doors of the family room and began firing two 12-gauge Mossberg shotguns. And uh, behind the couch, there were uh, French doors with wooden shutters, and um, some of the shots went through those wooden shutters and broke the glass in those French doors. One of the shots was a point-blank shot to the back of Jose Menendez's head. Kitty Menendez suffered a number of shots, and at one point she was crawling around the coffee table in the family room, and the brothers freaked out, uh, ran out to uh, Eric's car where they had more shotgun shells and reloaded. Then... It was all over. There was silence in the house, all but the sounds of the Bond movie. Eric and Lyle sat on the carpeted stairs of the Menendez estate, a light haze of smoke in the room. Several minutes passed, but no sirens, no knocks on the door, just the brothers and their parents in the same room for the last time. Nobody came. After about 15 minutes, they looked at each other and said, Okay, let's go pick up the shotgun shells and let's go get rid of these guns. So the brothers picked up all the shotgun shells in the family room. They uh, got in Eric's car and uh, Lyle driving very fast.
They needed to secure their alibi. The brothers would later tell the jury that they went to buy tickets to Batman, but the movie tickets were time-stamped. It wouldn't help their case, so they threw them away. Then they drove up Coldwater Canyon, a winding road from Beverly Hills to the valley. They turned onto Mulholland Drive and dumped the guns. They pulled over at a gas station and threw their bloody clothes in a dumpster. Next, they called their friend Perry Berman. Let's meet at our house, they told him. Then we'll head to the Cheesecake Factory. They said they needed to go home so Eric could pick up his fake ID. But it was a setup. They wanted Berman to be a witness when they arrived at the house to find their parents dead. Berman refused. Why did he need to be at the house for Eric to get his ID? The brothers were frantic. Looked like they were on their own. And that's when they walked in and, you know, I'll put it in air quotes, discovered their parents' bodies. What's the problem? Both brothers seemed extremely distraught. The emotion seemed uh, genuine. And uh, the Beverly Hills police made an enormous mistake, which was they did not perform gunshot residue tests on the brothers. That test would have saved police a half a year of investigating. Instead, a mysterious phone call from a stranger is the thing that nailed the brothers. The caller was unknown to Eric and Lyle Menendez, but she knew who they were. She also knew of tapes with incriminating evidence on them. Enough evidence, in fact, to convict the brothers. The scenario was, and I believe it was two weeks prior to the murder, they made an excuse. On the tape, they even say what the excuse is, I I believe. They made an excuse. And they went, they drove to San Diego. Um, They had false ID and they... That and more next time. Murder in the Menendez Brothers, a Core TV mystery, is hosted by Vinnie Politan. It's produced by Janaki Mehta and Tana Robbins of Neon Hum Media. Our editor is Catherine St. Louis. Our engineer is Scott Somerville. The executive producer at Neon Hum Media is Jonathan Hirsch. For Kate's Network Original Productions, Sophia Kelly is the senior vice president and Sean Cameron is the senior director. Production assistance is provided by Kate Mishkin and Haley Fager. Special thanks to Natalie Wren. You can see Court TV's complete coverage of the first Menendez trial in the Trials on Demand section on our website, courttv.com.